Ah, alas, the greatly precious Guru, the luminous circle of the sun which gave us light has gone. The crystal moon which relieved our suffering has disappeared. The stem of the plant containing the cure for our poisons has gone dry. The father has withdrawn his all-embracing compassion. The friend who saved us from drowning in the ocean of samsara has taken leave. The flame of the torch that dispelled the night of ignorance has been extinguished. The refuge to whom all our aspirations were directed is no more. Departed is Guru Padmasambhava, the master of all practices. The teacher who showed us the way things are has gone. O Guru Padmasambhava, remembering your deeds, our tears flow without restraint. We cannot breathe. We lose our footing. We roll on the ground and we can no longer steady our thoughts. Guru Padmasambhava has gone and we call with longing in a plaintive voice night and day to the greatly precious Guru. So these are some of the words from a plaintive longing song sung by Padmasambhava's great uh, Tibetan woman disciple Yeshe Tsogyal. She sang this song after Guru Padmasambhava departed into the azure sky on a winged horse to leave Tibet to the, go to the southwest country, the copper-coloured mountain there to deal with the flesh-eating Rakshasas, the ogres that were threatening to take over the entire world. He didn't die, he just went off. Yeshe Tsogyal was left on a mountain pass with fellow Tibetan disciples and devotees and this song or this part of this song expresses their deep sense of loss at the departure of their teacher. We have to imagine this, we have to imagine that you had in your midst a wise and compassionate teacher. Someone who gave you the Dharma not simply as a set of ideas and theories but gave you the Dharma as, as it were, living spiritual energy that sparked you off, that inspired you, electrified you. A teacher that gave you effective methods, clear and effective methods that channeled that living energy of the Dharma so that it completely transformed you, transformed every last dark corner of your psyche, your consciousness, your unconscious too. Imagine a teacher who came into your land seemingly not just from another country but from another dimension and who brought with him all the mystery and majesty of the unborn, of the deathless. Imagine a teacher whose very presence could draw everybody together to form a harmonious spiritual community, who could work together to build the necessary structures in which the Dharma could flourish. Imagine a teacher who could be as tender as a mother, but whose love, if, if necessary, could be fierce and direct like a lightning bolt. Imagine a teacher whose instruction could be precise and subtle, cryptic and profound. Imagine a teacher 
whose very presence would introduce you directly to the way things really are, and whose very recollection would inspire you and absorb you, whose very recollection would open up new dimensions to you. Well, if you had a teacher like that, if we had a teacher in our midst like that, well, surely when they go, when they depart, we would feel a deep sense of loss at their departure. I, I do know, I'm aware that Buddhism teaches non-attachment and all that. But of course, uh, we have to be careful with these non-attachment teachings, that it just doesn't become a kind of excuse for not really having a real passion, a real emotional connection with the Dharma. Unless you were really one with your teacher, you would feel that loss when they left you very keenly indeed, as if your very heart was pierced. And this is certainly how Yeshit Sogyal felt, and certainly how the Tibetans generally felt at Padmasambhava's departure after establishing the Dharma in Tibet. Indeed, one modern Buddhist scholar, Janet Gyatso, has described Tibetan culture as a culture of longing. A culture of longing. Longing for the presence again of Padmasambhava, of Guru Rinpoche, the greatly precious Guru. Uh, but uh, we can ask, what is the relevance of all that to us here and now in 21st century London? What possible relevance could an 8th century teacher in Tibet have for us? Why do we even celebrate Padmasambhava at all? Why do we devote a whole festival day to him in our calendar? Who is this Padmasambhava and in what way is he connected to us? Well, it has to be said from a strict Western scientific historical point of view, actually next to nothing is known about Padmasambhava. There does appear to have been an Indian teacher who lived in the 8th century and who played some part in the introduction of Buddhism into Tibet. Uh, but from a strict historical point of view, that's about all we know. Sometime in the 11th century and the centuries following in Tibet, something remarkable happens. There began to emerge a very rich literature indeed, containing very detailed material about this character Padmasambhava. Rich and vivid life stories emerged, containing an incredibly rich and detailed mythology, describing in fact an extraordinary figure, a transcendent figure, a figure who's not actually defined at all by the 8th century, but seemed to evoke a figure, a force, a consciousness, an energy, I don't know what word we have for this, that interacts with the whole flow and course of Buddhist history in India, and especially with the introduction of Buddhism into Tibet. It's an extraordinary literature, the, the Tur literature, the treasure literature as it's called. And it's not that uh, with, with, it's not just the emergence of a literature. What happens 
in about the 11th century, that's when it starts to happen. What emerges is an intense devotional movement in Tibet that centres on Padmasambhava. Padmasambhava, the lotus-born, becomes the centre of meditations, rituals, he is repeatedly seen in vision and continues to give the liberating dharma. He is a continuous source of inspiration, blessing, teaching, instruction. And it's very clear when you look at all this material that Padmasambhava is much, much more than a historical figure. He is in fact an archetype, an image, a symbol of enlightenment itself, of the Buddha himself. Padmasambhava's mythology, his many images, his many symbols, point to evoke the mysteries and the dimensions and the richness and the activities of the enlightened state. So with Padmasambhava we're not dealing with an exotic, colourful Tibetan form. If we treat this material just in that way we would be guilty of a sort of escapism. Padmasambhava must be found now. We need to be, we are, men and women of this time and of this place. And we can find, we must find, Padmasambhava in our lives now. In one of the life stories of Padmasambhava, we actually find him saying, Padmasambhava saying, to his disciples, uh, when he's talking about the future, the guru of times past will not be the guru of future men future people. The guru of times past will not be the guru of the future, making it very clear that Padmasambhava will transform himself according to the needs of people in their time and in their place. Now I've called this talk Searching for the Greatly Precious Guru and what I, I, I want to try and do is to, to suggest where we might look for that Greatly Precious Guru. Greatly Precious Guru is a rendering of the main way by which Tibetans refer to Padmasambhava. They refer to him as Guru Rinpoche. Rinpoche meaning something like greatly precious. It indicates something of very, very great value, of inestimable value, like a rare and highly prized jewel. Rinpoche is a term of very, very great reverence. Guru, of course, means teacher. And the word guru comes from a root meaning weighty or heavy. A teacher is heavy, uh, uh, weighty. Weighty and heavy with spiritual qualities. That's why they can teach. So Guru Rinpoche means the greatly precious teacher. Padmasambhava then is the archetypal spiritual teacher, teacher, the archetypal guru. He embodies, he symbolises the guru or the teacher aspect of enlightenment, of Buddhahood. But then of course another question, what is a guru? What is a teacher? And what is the teacher aspect of enlightenment? Uh, many of you here will probably know that our own teacher, Sangharakshita, has in a way de-emphasised the guru, the teacher, in part because the language of the Guru has been debased, even lampooned, as well as because the whole language of Guru-disciple can set up unhelpful 
attitudes in certain ways. Sangharachita has encouraged us more to think in terms of developing, cultivating spiritual fr- friendship, of actively cultivating metta, loving kindness for one another in the Sangha, as, you know, as, as well as in relation to everybody, but particularly in the spiritual community, to form warm and close friendships with one another, friendships with those on a similar level of experience as ourselves, friendships with those more experienced than ourselves, friendships with those less experienced than ourselves, although not being unhelpfully self-conscious about levels. We simply befriend one another in the context of following the path to enlightenment. But within spiritual friendship of any kind, there will be teaching and there will be learning. Within any effective spiritual life, there must be teaching and there must be learning. There must therefore be a teacher. There must be teachers who we can receive the teaching from, the instruction from. So for the rest of this talk, I will be seeing where we might find these teachers. And I'm going to think of these as manifestations of Guru Rinpoche, of Padmasambhava. So there are five of them, five teachers that we need to find. Number one, the teacher of direct vision. Two, the teacher of the golden precept. Three, the teacher of profound purity. Four, the teacher of miraculous transformation. And five, the teacher of continuous blessing. So first of all, the teacher of direct vision. This is the teacher who gives us a clear, direct, unmediated vision of enlightenment, of reality itself. The teacher whose very presence sparks something off in us. The teacher who communicates the majesty, the beauty, the energy of enlightenment itself. The teacher who shows a vision of what is possible clearly, directly to us. That vision might be evoked through words, through gestures, through symbols. It can come to us in any way, in any circumstance. But however it comes, you have a sense, even a vivid sense, of enlightenment, of yourself at the end of the path, of yourself spiritually reborn, a sense a vision, if you like, of you as lotus-born. Lotus-born. Padmasambhava's name name means, of course, the lotus-born, the one born of the lotus. The life of Padmasambhava actually begins like this. Padmasambhava was not born of a man and a woman. The story goes that the country of Udhyana in northwest India was in a really dreadful state. It was, in, it, was, uh, it was suffering from drought and famine and the king of the land was blind and without a son and heir. So it's an image of spiritual barrenness, of spiritual blindness and of potencies unable to find expression in a wasted land and perhaps 
we felt like that in our life. Many people do, as if they're just blundering around in a wasteland. And it's said in our story from Padmasambhava that Avalokiteshvara, the archetype of enlightened compassion, overwhelmed by this terrible situation, entreated his teacher, the great Red Buddha Amitabha, to do something. And Amitabha immediately sends from his tongue a ray of warm red light into the centre of the mountain lake of Dharnakosha in the land of Udhyana, which miraculously transforms into a fully opened red lotus, and then from his heart sends a golden vajra into that lotus. And from this vajra, this lightning bolt, Padmasamava is born, a fully grown eight-year-old boy-child as the text says, the colour of the purple of seashells. Beautiful, playful, with a slight frown, a quizzical expression. And when he was found, in answer to a number of questions, this child, fraught born from a lotus, replied, My father is the wisdom of spontaneous awareness. My mother is the bliss of reality's vast space. I have no country having been born in the realm of reality which has no caste. I nourish myself through eating up the false notion of duality, and I am here to destroy the suffering of all beings. So you have to imagine an eight-year-old child kind of looking at you saying these things. It's a bit spooky, isn't it? But the image of a beautiful child miraculously sprung from a lotus-speaking wisdom is an image of enlightenment. It's a vision of the purity, the freshness, the spontaneity and directness of the enlightened state of wisdom and compassion. Well, we need such a vision in our lives. We need to be directly in touch with such a vision. It won't come to us in this precise form of a child sitting in a lotus. It might not come like it won't come like that at all. It might come in any form. It might not come. In, it might not kind of have a, take a form at all. However, it comes. We need to continuously recollect that vision, that vision of possibility, even that vision of enlightenment, and recollect the freshness and creative energy that springs from that vision. So many people lose their way in the spiritual life after a good start because they forget their vision. They even become cynical in relation to that vision and cynical about even the possibility of vision and we know that we live in a deeply cynical age. And we live in that age I think because of an absence of vision. And if we're not in touch with that vision we won't make any real spiritual progress. So we must cherish those times, those moments of vision, those moments when the wisdom child shows itself. For those moments of vision are our teachers. They show the way directly. And vision can come at any time. It can come when we're meditating. It can come when we're studying. It can come when we're meeting spiritual friends. It can come at times when we least expect, in really difficult times. It can even come in dreams. However the vision comes, we must cherish the vision. And we must live from that vision. 
So the teacher, this is the teacher, the teacher of direct vision, shows us what's possible and what can open up before us. Sometimes some people, Padmasambhava, sometimes for some people, Padmasambhava is himself the teacher of direct vision. Our own teacher, Sangharachita, tells of how in the early 1950s, he, he was in the eastern Himalayas in, in the, the little town of Goom, and he wandered into a temple. And in the Goom, he encountered a massive image of Padmasambhava in his robes and holding his various symbolic implements and with that strange expression which is often described as a wrathful smile. And the image deeply impressed Sangharachita. He described it as strange and mysterious and yet at the same time it felt, although it was strange and mysterious, this figure, this form of Padmasambhava he felt had always been with him, had always been a part of him. And later on he would receive initiation uh, into meditation, centering on Padmasambhava. So that encounter was one of the many ways in which over the years Sangharachita has described his connection with a direct vision of the Dharma. So let's cherish our vision, never forget our vision, never part from our vision, never part from the teacher of vision. Reminds me of a traditional uh, Tibetan aspiration to the teacher which begins, O oh my own immediate radiant precious teacher, abiding within the lotus of my heart, may you never separate from me but, on the contrary, remain inseparable. So let's never be separable for our, from our vision. But vision's not enough. It's wonderful to have what is possible shown to us directly that will inspire and release a kind of creative energy in us. But then we have to practice. We will have to train in order to transform ourselves in the light of that vision. If we don't train, our vision will wither and fade, or we'll turn it into a kind of like a badge. You get people doing this, they've had some big experience or something like that, and it turns into a sort of, you know, some object of attachment, a kind of badge and flag that, that they wave, and then it becomes a source of conceit, and when that happens, the vision dies and all the rest of it. So we need to train. We need a training we need precepts to train by, which brings me to the teacher of the golden precept. The Sanskrit for training is shiksha. Uh, it's the same as in sikha, which is the Pali form, as in the uh, sikha padas, in the five precepts. Shiksha comes from a verbal root meaning to be able, to be capable. To enter the training, that leads to total transformation, spiritual rebirth, enlightenment, we need to be capable of doing it. Sometimes we can get into moods in which we don't feel capable. We feel that somehow we are uniquely flawed and it's, impo and it's, in it's impossible for us to make meaningful spiritual progress. Sometimes people get into moods in which they feel that they need not train because they have already arrived at the goal, and they're absolutely wonderful, uh, and they've nothing really to learn. Both of these moods are expressions of conceit, of arrogance. They represent fixed 
views of ourselves that make us feel that we are somehow special, either the uniquely flawed one or the supremely gifted one. Either way, we are, as Jose Mourinho once said, I am the special one. <laughs> Football reference, if anybody. <laughs> so if these moods take over, well, we're incapable of training. The teacher of the golden precept will always cut through whatever form of conceit we have, whatever version of it that we're doing. Whatever tactic, mood or drama that we're into that makes us feel special and separate. The teacher of the golden precept is not interested in our games and our moods and our dramas. If necessary, he'll be the Vajra Guru, the lightning bolt uh, guru, the thunderbolt guru, the adamantine guru, who Sangharakshita describes as the no-nonsense guru or the guru who means business. Uh, because that guru doesn't care what he does to wake us up to our actual reality. Really just doesn't care. Uh, because you know, we've got to be in touch with that reality, we've got to be in that reality, be that real, if it's only then that we can train, it's only then that we can engage in the training. I can remember a period in my early involvement with the order, uh, not long after I was ordained with Sangharachita himself, I thought I was, you know, if not the special one, at least <laughs> one of the special ones. And I really got into sort of attention-seeking in relation to him. And uh, whenever I was in those moods, he just ignored me. He just went Teflon, to completely non-stick. I'd go and try and talk to him and he'd just sort of look away. <laughs> Ask a really brilliant question in a seminar and he'd just look bored. <laughs> or just as if you hadn't said anything, you know. He was really amazing, just like a sheer cliff face, you know, where you couldn't get any purchase. And I must admit that uh, I'm very grateful to that period because it was just teaching me, really, to grow up. And uh, it's one of the great features of him as a teacher. Always, he's always thrown me back on myself. That's what he's done over the years. What the teacher wants is that we train ourselves thoroughly in the teaching. In the life of Padmasambhava, there are wonderful accounts of him giving detailed instruction in stages of the path and talking about all the different practices and so on. But it's clear that the teachings, the training, is specific to the disciples he teaches. It's a very focused uh, training that he's giving so that you can really connect with it. So if we're going to find the golden precept, we need to engage in a clear and progressive Dharma training that you can give yourself to as fully and completely as possible and then make it your own. Fully internalise it and fully live it. Then you can turn the general training into your specific training. You discover, in other words, the teacher of the golden precept. There's a very famous saying by the great Indian teacher, Atisha, the precept of the teacher is more important than the scriptures and their commentaries. The precept of the teacher is the pithy, direct, dharma teaching that goes right to the heart. It's the precious golden precept 
that shows you how to train in the vision right now. How to apply the general training to your specific circumstances. It encapsulates all of the Dharma into a single phrase or even a single word. You know, sometimes you can wake up, I've had this experience, wake up in the morning sometimes, particularly on an intensive retreat, and there's just one Dharma word in my mind. And it's as if it's really speaking to me at that time. That's why it's golden, that's why it's so very precious. And this golden precept can only be discovered through the intensity of training, through intense engagement with spiritual practice and with spiritual friends. Only then will the teacher of the golden precept manifest. And when you look at the life of Padmasambhava, you can see that he was a teacher who gave golden precepts from the heart to the heart, perhaps especially to, to his disciple Yashid Sogyal. And she could hear the golden precepts because of her single-minded commitment and the intensity of her spiritual practice. Just, just an example. This is Padmasambhava speaking. Sogya, if people will listen, this is the precept they should practice. Enough of your past struggling with pointless activities. Now accomplish the important task. Enough with your tiresome and hopeless slaving for others' worldly ends. Now accomplish what is of real benefit. Enough with your wasted words and deeds. Now steer your body and voice to the Dharma. Enough with your indifferent complacency. Now bring forth joyous diligence in practice. Enough with submitting to family. Break down the wall of fear. Enough with hatred to enemies. Now train in love and compassion. Enough with being caught in the senses. Now look into the natural awakened mind. Enough with your creation of evil karma. Now give up misdeeds and wrongdoing. Enough with your misery in samsaric existence. Now liberate into the realm of great bliss. Now is the time for unifying faith and diligence and for attaining enlightenment. But for the golden precept to be given and received, for the teacher of the golden precept to be found, we will need to clear away everything that pre prevents us from seeing the teacher and receiving the precept. We're often too full of ourselves, too bound up with all sorts of worldly aims and concerns to fully engage with the training. Very often we haven't really decided to follow the path. We regard Buddhism as a kind of hobby, a kind of add-on to our lives, a kind of luxury item. Um, that makes us feel good rather than what the Dharma should be to us, as precious and as vital as life itself, as our own breath, as our own heartbeat, as our own eyes. To really find the teacher and to hear the teacher, we'll need to divest ourselves of everything internal and external that's in the way. We'll need to purify ourselves. This is very hot work. So I'm going to talk now about the teacher of profound purity. 
So in the life story of Padmasambhava, we find a long period of intense purification. The story goes that having been found in his lotus, Padmasambhava was adopted as the son and heir of the king of Udhyana, whose name, by the way, was Indrabhuti. So he was going to be groomed to be the next king. And as you can imagine, of one born from a lotus in a mountain lake, Padmasambhava felt rather confined, even very confined, in the palace. And he was really restless. He just longed to get away and to get out. It's as if he's some foundling, some child of fairy, who longs to return to their natural abode. But it was very difficult to get away. The king loved him very deeply and he created all sorts of obstacles for his adopted son. So, as youths sometimes do, Padmasambhava began to misbehave. You know, you just have to imagine a lotus-born adolescent on your hands. It must be really freaky. Um, really, really freaky. Really weird. And it was really weird because he started to get rid of all his princely clothes and started to dress up in really scanty kind of animal skins. And he decked himself out in bone ornaments. He let his hair grow long and matted, fantastic dreads, and took to dancing ecstatically on the roof of the palace. His eyes wild, his clothes falling off, singing all sorts of weird, uh, weird songs. He just went completely weird and strange, even mad. And of course, this deeply shocked the court. And you, we really do need to appreciate the symbolism here. He's not just, this isn't just bad behaviour, mad behaviour. The nakedness and those uh, bone ornaments and those animal skins, these would have been deeply shocking to the high caste codes of an Indian court. His behaviour became so very bad, I won't go into the details, uh, that the court <laughs> insisted that Padmasambhava be sent away. They wanted to have him executed, but the king you know, managed to stop the court doing that. So, okay, he goes into exile. And they thought, where? Yes, we know. The great cremation ground called Chili Grove. Chili Grove. Sounds like a line on the underground, doesn't it? A station on the underground. Chili Grove. <laughs> And Padmasambhava stayed there for some time. In fact, for many years, Padmasambhava went from one great cremation ground to another until he'd stayed in the eight great cremation grounds of India at that time. And these are, were very lonely places, away from the cities and towns, outside the villages. Lonely places where the dead were brought and left to rot, or to be picked apart by vultures and other scavengers, or burned from time to time in great pyres. And judging by Buddhist tantric literature, the cremation ground was an extraordinarily important place for spiritual practice. They were places where there would be important encounters with all kinds of of beings. Uh, they were places of vision, of teaching, of gathering with other followers of the path, places of initiation, a place where you would find the teacher in all kinds of forms. This is an incredibly rich topic. Sangharakshita, our teacher, has devoted a whole lecture to it called uh, 
the, the symbolism of the cremation ground and the celestial maidens, which is well worth checking out. What I want to talk about is the cremation ground as the place of purification, where you find the teacher of profound purity. Because the cremation ground is the place where all worldly concerns and ambitions are purified. For traditional, caste-bound, Brahminical, dominated Indian society, anything to do with death and the dead is ritually, socially, religiously, perhaps even politically, impure. To live in the cremation ground means that you are outcast. You are polluted. You are untouchable. You are no longer a respectable member of society. And the yogis like Padmasambhava who lived there were not respectable. Uh, were completely dead to the norms of conventional society. They would wear barely any clothes. They would grow their hair long and matted and spend their time meditating among the dead. And they lived like that in part to purify themselves of worldly position, worldly ambition, worldly comfort. They haven't just gone forth into homelessness as the traditional Buddhist language has it. They adopted a life where they will be completely rejected by society, completely blamed by worldly society. You find a similar phenomenon in, in the Sufi tradition where you have the, the malamatya, the people of blame, who would deliberately, publicly go, go against the Sharia in order to test you know, their real love of God. Very similar. So for these yogis, for Padmasambhava and the yogis, the only thing that matters is the vision, is the training, is the desire, the longing to be spiritually, to spiritually die and to be spiritually reborn. The only thing that matters is enlightenment itself. Nothing else matters. Perhaps in a very small way, we touch this ourselves on occasion. Sometimes it happens, not always, but sometimes we take up the Dharma and we start taking it up seriously and close friends, they don't like it. Family doesn't like it. Lovers don't like it. They even find it shocking and disturbing because they see that you're changing. They might even disapprove because something is coming in that is kind of unknown, kind of uncontrollable. You're becoming a bit uncontrollable. You're just being yourself, meditating and observing the precepts and all the rest of it, going on retreat. But from what they're con from, from their point of view, you are going seriously weird. <laughs> I remember a wife of, of one of our order members um, saying to me that when her husband got involved in the Dharma, she said, it was worse than if he got involved with another woman. <laughs> I mean, they sorted it all out and everything. That's fine. People might accuse us of being weird, of being mad, of being selfish, meditating. We may even think that somehow we're wrong. Oh yeah, I suppose, you know, that time sitting still meditating. And we feel like pulling back from the Dharma. But we're not doing anything wrong. That's not what's happening. The fact is we're changing. 
And because we're changing, we no longer fit uh, in, in, in the old relationships. And this can be very uncomfortable. And it's a great test of the depth of our individual involvement with the Dharma. It's also a purification. We're puring out, purifying ourselves of wanting to be liked, of wanting to be approved of by the various groups to which we belong and so on. We might even feel during these times that we don't know who we are anymore. You certainly go through periods like that in your spiritual life. You just don't know who you are. All the usual markers of identity seem to have vanished. Well, it's like that in the cremation ground. It's a weird place where the dead are left and where the ghosts and ghouls gather, where the gods and spirits gather. It's, a, it's the place especially where the darkenies gather. And by darkenies here, I don't mean the wisdom darkenies. They're the beautiful feminine archetypes of the wisdom and inspiration of enlightenment. I'm talking about flesh-eating ogresses. Very important not to mix up your darkenies. <laughs> important. You might think you're with a wisdom darkening. Well, maybe not. On the other hand, you might think you're with an ogress, but maybe you're with an uh, a wisdom darkening. Anyway, these darkenies gather around the yogi. So let's imagine them. This is really a wonderfully vivid passage from the life of Padmasambhava. These are the darkenies of Chili Grove. There are to be seen countless darkenies. Some of them have eyes that dart out sun rays. Others gives ri give rise to thunderclaps and ride water buffaloes. Others hold sabres and have eyes which inflict harm. Others wear death's heads, one above the other, and ride tigers. Others wear corpses and ride lions. Others eat entrails and ride garudas. Others have flaming lances and ride jackals. Others, five-faced, are steeped in a lake of blood. Others, in their numberless hands, carry many generations of living beings. Others carry in their hands their own heads, which they've severed. Others carry in their hands their own hearts, which they've torn out. There are others who've made gaping wounds in their bodies and who empty out and devour their own intestines and entrails. There are others who hide and yet reveal their male or female sexual organs and who ride horses, bulls and elephants. I'd love to see this in 3D. <laughs> <laughs> Any filmmakers? So creatures like this would gather around Padmasambhava and he would sit, unconcerned, his skin glowing red, his face ecstatic, leaning back with his back to a stupa, which is an architectural symbol of the Dharma. He'd sit there leaning back, enjoying the scene, enjoying this fabulous display before him, and it said, he would teach them the Dharma. He would communicate with them. He'd teach the Dharma through his being. His fascinating being would draw these darkenies, these forces to the Dharma. Because Padmasambhava doesn't 
see all these darkenies as monstrous deviations. He sees all of this as the expression of life itself. Life as it really is, the constant transformation, the continuous metamorphosis of life, the constant play of birth and life and death and birth again. So to dwell in the cremation ground means to live in full and vivid awareness of this world of transformations in all its strangeness. Most of the time we, have, we think we have this world kind of sussed and nailed down and worked out. Well, you can forget it. You can really forget that, especially when you really get into the Dharma. It's just not like that. It is, in fact, continuous strangeness and transformation and richness. And when you see this world as it really is, like that, as continuous transformation, you discover then the Dharkani as the teacher, the wisdom Dharkani herself. In one of the great cremation grounds, Padmasambhava finds his way to a palace called the Castle of the Skull. And he goes there because he knows that in the centre of that palace is the great teacher, the great wisdom Dharkani, Surya Chandrasiddhi, the attainment of the union of the solar and lunar energies, the wisdom and compassion of all the Buddhas. It was hard to get in to this teacher, hard to get to her. He had to pass many tests and perform many magical feats. But eventually he came before this great red darkeny sitting on her throne of the moon and the sun. He requested teaching, he requested initiation. And the darkeny saw that he was indeed ready. And when she saw that, immediately transformed him into a syllable, a mantric seed syllable, which she then swallowed. And Padmasambhava, as this syllable, passed through her, undergoing all kinds of transformation as he passed through her different centres, at last emerging, utterly changed, purified, transfigured, spiritually reborn. So the cremation ground is not only the place of profound purification, where we find the teacher who purifies, the cremation ground shows us that living the Dharma life will involve t a t total spiritual transformation, a spiritual death and a spiritual rebirth. We tend to think of Buddhist life as going along, gradually improving, adding a bit to ourselves, adjusting this and that, so that eventually we will arrive at a comfortable place. <laughs> but the real Dharma life just isn't like that at all. It involves the giving up of absolutely everything. So it is indeed more like being eaten, swallowed whole, consumed, so that we might re-emerge rich and strange, but which paradoxically is more truly us because we're living all the time perfectly attuned to the constant death and rebirth, the constant transformation of life. So this brings us, fourthly, to the teacher of miraculous transformation. One of the most famous parts of Padmasambhava's life story concerns the introduction of Buddhism into Tibet. The great king, Trisong Detson, 
was building the great monastery of Samye, a great centre of spiritual training where the Sangha, the spiritual community could gather. And the builders got going, laying the foundations, erecting the walls. But when they returned the following day, the walls had been destroyed and all of the materials returned to their original places. This happened a number of times. And the king was advised that what was going on was that the gods and spirits of the land of Tibet were not happy. They weren't happy with the Dharma, the Buddha's teaching, coming into the land of, the, of, of, of Tibet. The deep forces of the land of the Tibetan psychic body did not want the Dharma in their midst. So the king was advised to invite Padmasambhava to come. Only he could deal with this situation. He was famous throughout India for engaging with such forces as these, all this dark, powerful, rich material. And Padmasambhava was a long time coming. He spent months, maybe even a year, in the mountains and valleys of Tibet, calling up the various gods who attacked him, but who he eventually tamed through his overwhelming spiritual majesty. Each god would give him the heart of their life, their heart name, and vowed to serve the Dharma, to enrich the Dharma, to protect the Dharma rather than to oppose the Dharma. So because of these and similar stories, Sangharachita sees Padmasambhava especially as the Dharma itself, as the Buddha himself, in the aspect of transforming the deep, powerful forces of our minds and of our world, so that they enrich our Dharma life rather than oppose it. This is a really big topic and actually not easy to see how it might work. I'm just going to talk very briefly about one god or goddess, a very powerful one, desire, passion. We know how powerful desire is and how it manifests in us in so many ways as sexual passion, as intense love, all expressions of that deep drive to be, to exist, to live, to experience. That just drives us along. Well, imagine that deep drive, that irresistible drive, that passion fully harnessed into our spiritual life. Imagine meditating with that intensity of studying the Dharma with that passion, of working for the Dharma with such single-minded love. Passion and love and desire are gods and goddesses after all. Imagine too the intensity of pleasure that would come from your Dharma life when those forces are fully involved, fully engaged in our spiritual life. Guru Padmasambhava, the teacher of miraculous transformation, symbolises that which can transform such gods and goddesses as these, like desire, like passion. It's not very easy to say how this happens, but what we can see in the tradition is the great disciples of Guru Padmasambhava, well, we see how they regard him. They regard him as extraordinarily beautiful, as incredibly handsome and beguiling 
and fascinating. The Indian princess Mandarava faints when she first sees Padmasambhava. She's just so stunned by his beauty. And when she comes to, she praises him as the healing power of love, as the dazzling joyful epiphany. If we're to really progress along the path, if we are to be fully transformed, we need to find the form of the Buddha, the form of the teacher, the form of the Guru, the form of enlightenment, who is utterly beautiful to us, who dazzles and fascinates us, who draws forth from us intense love and surging devotion. There's quite a theme in our, uh, in our sangha, in our movement, uh, 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 quite a lot of discussion at the moment, about the importance of the imagination in the Buddhist life. And you get lots of questions about, well, what is it? How do you do it? How do you engage the imagination? And people theorise a lot about it. You can see great learned books on the imagination. But you know, it's really very simple. We always image our desires. Whatever we strongly desire, that we imagine. The stronger the desire, the more compelling the image. So find the image. Find the images that will take all of your desire and passion that is moving to enlightenment. The most meaningful image, the most meaningful symbol, the most meaningful myth, the most beautiful. Find your Lord or your Lady in the most beautiful of forms, the most compelling of forms, the most compelling of stories and myths. You know, when you really have that in your life, you'll start to see that quality everywhere, in everybody. You'll begin to feel and experience the teacher of continuous blessing. So nearly finished now. The teacher of continuous blessing. Again, this is not something easy to speak of, because we know that Buddhism is profoundly non-theistic, no creator, God in Buddhism. And of course that's extraordinarily important because that means that there is no limit to spiritual development. And it means of course that we have to rely on ourselves. We have to take, and we can take, full responsibility for ourselves. It's very important that we get hold of this. But there are times when you kind of wake up and you look around in wonder at what you have. What have I found? What have I come across? This Dharma, these teachings, this teacher, these spiritual friends, this centre, this life, this richness, this precious human life so rich with possibility. How has this happened? It's not just down to my own efforts. You might even feel that something wonderful is raining down upon you, that enriches you and sustains you, which somehow brings profound, wordless and undefined meaning to you. You feel that sometimes in spite of yourself, and it moves you to live for the enrichment and, and uplift, not just of yourself, but for everybody you encounter. And the followers of Guru Padmasambhava, 
Guru Rinpoche are keenly aware of this. I started this talk by describing the intense feeling of absence and longing felt by Yeshet Sogil and the other disciples of Guru Padmasambhava as he disappeared into the depths of space. But it's said that he will never leave those who long for him. If you like, he's there in the longing, there strangely in the absence. His blessings will always be present, especially in the dark and difficult times, especially when the anxieties of the world press in upon us. So listen to what Padmasambhava says about himself to his disciples before he leaves Tibet. Recollect Padmasambhava embodied in a form of light and not of flesh and have great confidence and I shall come unable to resist. When you make strong and fervent aspirations with devotion to me, Padmasambhava, I will come to you. Again and yet again say this, in joy and sorrow, good times and bad times, in death, in life, in this world and the next, in every circumstance, now until enlightenment, in pleasure or pain, you are my refuge. O Guru Padmasambhava, you who know, I trust in you. With those who have devoted hearts, I stay. From them, I'm never separate. So may we all find the precious teacher, the teacher of direct vision, the teacher of the golden precept, the teacher of profound purity, the teacher of miraculous transformation, the teacher of continuous blessing. May we find the greatly precious Guru in whatever form he takes and in all of our lives. May we never be separated from him.